Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've seen is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The dream, the American dream, is something that, you know, has been around as long as America has been around. And sometimes people who are in need at the uh, lower end of the income ladder look to help from the rich people, handouts, charity, investments of one sort or another. And that seems to be the system so far. That is what uh, the, uh, the right wing, also known as the Tea Party, also known as the Republican Party, wants to do away with government investing in the community. And they want to leave it up to the wealthy individuals, the trickle-down theory, that the a rising tide lifting the super yachts will somehow also help the little dinghies that are floating around barely in the water. We're going to talk about the idea of charity on today's show. Our guest is Sean McElwee, who's been with us before. Sean, thanks for being with us again on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Well, Sean McElwee is a writer and researcher whose work has been featured in Salon, The Atlantic, Rolling Stone and the New Republic. He blogs at seanmcelwee.com. And he writes that charity is great, but it won't bring real change. And worse, it perpetuates the myth that we need the ultra-rich. As H.L. Mencken, one of my favorite uh, writers, uh, said, the urge to save humanity is almost always a false front for the urge to rule. Sean, again, thanks for being with us. It seems to me that many hundreds of years ago, in feudal times, also known as manorial times, but better known as feudal times, royalty eventually learned that to avoid nasty revolutions by the rabble in the streets, it might be a good idea to, as publicly as possible, make gifts to the peasants so about once a year. What what can you tell us about the history of what we now call philanthropy? Is that where it comes from? Mm-hmm. I mean, philanthropy and charity have charity at least has existed for I mean as long as there has been inequality of, of wealth. I mean, you know, this is something that the Jewish tradition deals with, the Christian tradition deals with. Uh, you, you'll see it. In, I mean, Oscar Wilde deals with it. I think the idea of like modern philanthropy, what we really see is with the Carnegies and the Rockefellers because you get these massive accumulations of fortune. And, and Carnegie, in his Gospel of Wealth, specifically says we should not bequeath uh, our, our fortune to charity, because if you give it to charity, you're not sure how the funds are going to be used. 
So the idea of philanthropy as something that the wealthy need to control, right? Carnegie and, and Rockefeller, both of them are exercise a lot of control over the way that the money is used. And I think that is what you're seeing with people like Zuckerberg, people like Gates. What they're interested in doing is they have very specific ideas uh, about how they want their wealth to be used. In many cases, uh, for example, Bill Gates, what he's done with contraception, that's something that you could not do in the public sphere because of the power of the religious right. But I worry that too much emphasis of philanthropy, we have to take the bad with the good. Well, what what do you mean? That, that's an interesting concept. And one of the things that has gotten me through the years of philanthropy is, for example, I mean, how much the givers plaster their names out there. So, I mean, they just make sure that, uh, for example, there was a, a former U.S. senator from New Hampshire, Judd Gregg, who has the Judd Gregg this, the Judd Gregg that. He's still alive, you know, which it seems to me kind of, uh, well, frankly, in poor taste. If you're going to be giving money away, it shouldn't be about you, the giver, but, well, how much is it about the giver? And, and how important is it that they be known for their charity? And, and this is where, see, I think that if philanthropy were something that people were doing, that, that say, uh, uh, Gates is doing independently, a uh, Walton is doing independently, fine. But the fact is, is the taxpayer is subsidizing this philanthropy. Right, so essentially what we're doing, if you think about it, is we're taking money that would be coming into the public coffers through tax dollars, and we're giving it back to the wealthy through tax breaks and allowing them to have private control over wealth that should be controlled by the public. Now, that's a very dangerous idea, I think, is to take something that normally 300 million Americans would be voting to decide how these funds are used, and then giving them to a single individual, I mean, that's going to... That, the whole goal of politics is, is is fighting over who gets what, and we're delegating that very important responsibility to a, a, a single individual, and we're allowing them, if you think about this, to take credit for something that we're all doing, because we're all sacrificing and we're, when we have these experts to further philanthropy. So, so absolutely, I think it is in a very real way, uh, about narcissism. It's about, hmm. uh, just to finish off, I mean, Hofstetter has this great quote. He says, it used to be that great men built systems, and now great systems build men. Uh, uh, and and the, the wealth of the Walton family does not come from some Nietzschean uh, uh, force on their own part. It comes from gaining a lot of wealth from their father. Interesting. Well, yeah, the, the, there's so much to talk about there. You know, the money that comes from these very, very wealthy people is money that, as you say, is, is not going to, to taxes. And thinking about, uh, you know, the, the, and the taxes could be used to support the common good as, as the public sees it. Now, that, that brings up a problem. One of the issues about uh, philanthropy um, is that the choices about where to invest, where to uh, to give the charity, are made by those very, very wealthy individuals. What about if it's, say, if that money were being, some of that money were going to taxes, 
then what would the decision-making process be? I mean, would it necessarily be a better decision-making process? I mean, look where our tax dollars go now. An awful lot of them go to, uh, to uh, military welfare, to the, to the uh, war profiteers and others. But is there some precedent, perhaps in other countries, where uh, there's less reliance on the kindness of strangers, if you will, and, and more reliance on the government who is, uh, at least in theory, uh, uh, you know, we govern ourselves. Is, is there some precedent and perhaps hope that uh, if the government were more in charge of the, uh, what is now philanthropy, that it might be used better? Uh, and absolutely, and this is the, the key premise of the argument, is the idea that we could somehow have a, a modern democracy with a social safety and a strong middle class entirely funded by charity it is absurd. Uh, the fact is that the middle class actually gives more as a proportion of their income than wealthy do to charity. Well, that's and, and that's as important. So, the, so if you look at how much we spend just the bare minimum social safety that the U.S. has, and it needs to be much larger. We spend about $700 billion a year. Charity of all sorts, and this is not just charity to the poor, all philanthropy together uh, was $300 billion in 2012. Uh-huh. So, so that's half of that. And then you have to cut that $300 billion into the fact that most of that money is not going to help the poor. That money is going to, to art. That money is going to universities. That money is going uh, to, to, to churches all very great places, but the idea that you could somehow sustain a social safety net, the minimal social safety that we have, purely based on private charity, is absurd. And look at the amount of scrutiny that a program like Temporary Assistance to Needy Families, uh, like the food stamp programs, has, not only from, say, something like the Government Accountability Office, but from the press. I mean, Fox News will hop on any story about welfare fraud. Uh, so there actually, there's this idea that that public uh, spending is not scrutinized. Public spending is incredibly scrutinized. And when we're talking about the idea of a social safety, we're not talking uh, about a theoretical. There is a very real social safety net in European countries. We've seen social democracy work, and we've seen the, the profound in, the impact that it can have. So the hypothetical in this situation is not my argument that we could have a social safety net. The hypothetical is the conservative argument that you could somehow have anything like a welfare state funded purely on beneficence. So depending on the kindness of strangers. Now, it's, I think it's interesting that that quote from Streetcar Named Desire is is so famous and so well-known. What, what do you make of that? I mean, it's a very dramatic moment when, uh, I think it's Blanche Dubois, if I remember correctly, says, I've always depended on the kindness of strangers. What's the point that uh, the uh, playwright is trying to make through that line? Yeah. Um, I mean, the first, when you really get down to the, the base of philanthropy, the first assumption that you have to accept is that markets distribute income according to some sort of just desserts measure, right? And I reject sure. that premise. Right. And so when I read someone like In the Streetcar Named Desire or Oscar Wilde's brilliant essay on the subject, I see charity as inherently degrading because charity means that the person who is accepting this charity has to accept the fact that I am somehow a lower, uh, right. a lower human being because the market has decided 
that I should not make enough money to live. Whereas with with social democracy, uh, uh, we liberals run into the Dostoevsky problem, which is the more I love uh, all of mankind, the, the harder it is for me to love the individual. Social democracy solves that problem, which is that we don't go to the food bank on Saturday because we got drunk on Friday. So just have taxes and then have someone else who is in charge of our charity. We can, it's the idea that you could run a social debt based on the beneficent strangers is, is of course, an absurdity because we know it from our own lives. How many times have we thought about a good thing that we should be doing and then end up not doing it? So I think that's the profound impact of the quote. It, it, it's twofold. First, the which is, is inherently degrading to the person yes. who's receiving it. Uh, and, and second, our own failure uh, of beneficence on our part. Yeah, interesting. I can think of so many examples. I mean, I, I have a, a, a dog. I, I love my dog. My dog loves me. I do not consider him my equal. <laughs> he does not consider me, you know, his equal. I give him, I, I will admit sometimes, table scraps. He loves them. He likes dog biscuits. He's ever grateful to the master. Now, that might be okay for a human and a dog situation, but, uh, you know, it's, it, as you say, it's, it's clearly degrading. And we've, you know, in slave days that, uh, you know, they say, yes, a massa, you know, they just take whatever they got. And it's the decision of the, the master, the owner, the, uh, the plutocrat, to decide where the money goes. And I'm reminded, I think this is true, that one of America's earliest extremely wealthy men was John D. Rockefeller, who made his money from oil, of course. And the story is that that he would uh, hand out bags of dimes to people. What do you know about, I mean, talk about degrading. Is that a true story or is that a, a fiction, do you know? I, I don't know about that particular story about the bag of dimes, but I think there is an important point here to be made on Rockefeller. Uh, Chris Rock, I, I cite his, I like to use stand-up comedy, that's some article. Sure. Chris Rock says every, every great fortune is, is built on, uh, on a crime, and, and to some extent I, I think that's, that's very true. Mm. And I think a lot of philanthropy is uh, assuaging the guilt of, of the wealthy. So, take, for example, Bill Gates. The ultimate irony of Bill Gates is philanthropy right now is that this is a man who made his wealth uh, based on intellectual property rights. He took something that was in the public domain, uh, that is, all of the fascinating developments in computers that were primarily driven by government institutes. He takes that, he brings it into with public, makes it private to profit off of it, which if you believe, say, someone like Rousseau or Marx is how all, all, all profit is made. And, and, and then he defends that using the courts and intellectual property rights. And now he takes that massive amount of wealth that he's made, and he's trying to deliver vaccines and medicine to Africa. It is not, not vaccines and medicine, though. It's intellectual property rights. So, so the irony here is, is we're taking the, the problem that market has created, and this is nothing to exist, and we're trying to solve it using the same market mechanisms, right? So Zizek has this, this quote, he says, yes, but we, we love to look at the philanthropist as someone who, who's, who's giving. But before they, they can give, they must take. Uh, and, and so that, I think, is the, is the real problem, is you have something that was once public or 
describe it, and then we're trying to solve the, the problem that markets create with markets themselves. But yeah. I, I don't know about the dime story. No, it, I, I don't know. But, but the, the whole idea, and, and certainly we know that uh, you, you can really see when there are charity balls and things like that, people get dressed to the nines, wherever that phrase comes from, I don't know. But people get dressed up really well, and you know they help uh, the poor people in some other continent or something. And you're right, I think. It, it, the, the, the purpose of it is to assuage the guilt of having all that money. Because, you know, I, I think people with a sense of ethics do care about uh, how other people are doing. And when they when they get a, a fair chunk of change, they might want to think, ooh, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that. And because we don't have a system where, you know, people pay their fair share of taxes, people like that have to do something. And what are the question that I have that you brought up a little bit about, you know, the the amount of money that people give? I wonder what uh, Sean McElwee, what you have uh, with regard to a comparison of what what the richest give compared to what you know middle class people give, su- such as the middle class is, uh, you know, like what percentage of their income they might give is there some uh comparison of of how much you know like a billionaire gives versus somebody who makes say you know 250,000 a year who's doing pretty well but not you know super rich i got to say your your sound is breaking up a little bit i don't know if you can do anything about that All right. All right. In, in my article i actually have i i cite the study and uh, actually, the poorest Americans donate about 3.2% of their income. Okay. And we have to remember that not only are the poor Americans giving more, but if you're a, a poor person, that 3.2% of your income that you're giving, that's a meal that you're missing. For a wealthy person, the 1.3% of the income that you're getting really has no marginal effect on you. And, uh, you know, the, the percentage of what they give, and you reminded me of something that David no, it wasn't David. It was Nelson Rockefeller said quite a while ago, probably in the late 60s, that uh, $10,000 to him is like $100 to somebody else. <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's, you know, the way it is. Now, the Catholic Church, looking at history a little bit, the Catholic Church, and I believe other religious organizations, used to promote tithing. I'm not sure what that was. I think it was a, a suggested percentage of wealth that the super rich should give. What do you know about tithing? That concept. Yeah, uh, the the doctrine is, is in the Bible. The the Bible doesn't give you a percentage of how much you no. should tithe. Uh-huh. Um, but the Catholic Church's doctrine on that is ten percent of your income. Ten percent. Well, I, don't... I, I would argue for a sliding scale, though. Uh, so a wealthy person should probably give something m- much more, like say twenty or thirty percent of their income, whereas a, a poor person. Maybe shouldn't give any of their income uh, uh, at all. Right, right. I mean, why Why should they? They have less, frankly, responsibility. And it used to be under Republican President Dwight Eisenhower that above a certain income, that you know, excess income would be taxed sometimes at 90%. This was a mm-hmm. Republican president. And a lot of wealthy people felt like, you know, okay, 
that's fair. I'm still going to make a lot of money. Again, it wasn't on all their income. It was just above a certain level. And so if that were the case, if there were, you know, a, a progressive income tax, as you say, sort of a sliding scale, I wonder if that might uh, might answer that way. When was the last time any uh, uh, mainstream or even slightly left of mainstream politician were talking about uh, a progressive income tax? Is there anybody talking about that? What you know, what you're talking about, the social democracy? Mm-hmm. I'd make two points on this. The first one is you're absolutely right. The the, the uh, marginal income tax used to be something like 90%. Uh, remember what happened, though, when the left even suggested this. The Wall Street Journal releases a letter where a billionaire complains of a progressive crystal knock. So, so progressive <laughs> income taxes are going to be hard a hard sell. Social democracy in Europe, though, is actually based on a combination of taxes, primarily the value-added tax. And the idea here, and I think this is the idea that the left needs to embrace, is what might be important is is getting the funds to the government, doing it in the most efficient way, and doing it in the most politically uh, politically feasible way, and then and then using the distribution of those funds to alleviate poverty. So I would say, is is a is a consumption tax regressive? Absolutely. But if it's if it is a cash cow that I think it will be, then we should accept that regressivity in the in the tax system, and then transfer to solve that problem. Interesting. And the uh, you know I can imagine the uh, Republican Party you know just uh, calling that socialism, communism, whatever. But last time I checked, places like Germany, which I believe have a system uh, similar to what you're talking about, happen to have stronger economies they don't have the uh you know terribly poor people and a bigger share of the uh, economy being poor people they're they're in uh, in better shape and a lot of people on the right say oh anything government does is inefficient private enterprises can do everything more efficiently now tax exempt charities all have to spend money to to administer. They got to run the the operation. It costs them a little bit of money. It's overhead. What do we know about the overheads of these tax exempt charities compared to uh, that of programs which are directly funded by tax dollars? Is there a comparison of the overhead? How much it costs to administer a private program versus how much it costs to uh, administer uh, the overhead for a uh, an actual government program? The idea that a large government sector slows economic growth. Uh, yeah, so two things. The first is it's provably false that a large government sector impedes economic growth. The, the idea that that is true isn't really dogma and ideology. On the second point, absolutely, you get, uh, as you move from the private small charities to the government, you get what are called economies. Not a uh, large corporations. So it's overhead costs uh, government providing charity far smaller than. But if you have a government program, you have one receptionist. That's the simplest way to see the problem. Hey, do you have a landline nearby? Because this cell phone is it's a little bit tough to to hear. It keeps breaking up quite a bit. It, call me here at, at on a on a landline that would help a lot. I'll hang up and and wait for your call. Thank you. All right. Thanks. 
it's really interesting stuff, uh, obviously, but uh, I, I, I apologize for the uh, bad connection here. Talking about uh, wealth, philanthropy, what it is, uh, contributions. Who does it help more? Does it help the rich, the richest, or does it help uh, people who are in need? And is it a system that... Uh, that should go on. Hopefully he's going to be calling real soon on a landline, which should sound a lot better because I care about you all uh, wanting to be able to hear what he's saying because it is pretty interesting. There's a lot more to talk about with regard to the whole concept of philanthropy. Um, I do, oh, here's an incoming call. Let's see here. We're coming in here. Sean, are you there? Yep. Excellent. Are you there still? Yep. Oh, my goodness. That is so much better. Ah, I'm not sure where we were. Uh, we were just talking about the overhead costs of it. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, comparing the uh, the overhead costs of private charities versus the government, the allegedly inefficient government. So uh, tell us about that. Yeah, and again, I'd, I'd just like to start quickly on the point that you made. You said, uh, does larger government impede economic growth? We know that that's not true. Uh, we have the data now to prove that countries with government taking up a large portion of the economy are growing just as fast as those with a smaller portion of the government taking up the economy. Uh, so so when, whenever someone says that we need to cut taxes and get government right. out of the economy, that's, that's a disprovably uh, a false assertion. But yeah, on, on the question uh, of overhead costs, it's a, the easiest way I think to think of this is, is in what ec- economists call economies of scale, right. which is if you have 10 companies delivering a service, uh, you have all of these smaller jobs where you can't divide the labor quite as, as well. Division of labor is a classic uh, economics concept. Easiest way to think of it is, say you have 10 private charities that are working to eliminate homelessness. Well, each of those charities is going to have to have their own receptionist, right? Right. Uh, now, if you have one government program, you only need one receptionist, maybe two max. So the government can use these economies of scale, and it also can distribute the funds to where it's most needed. So Mark Zuckerberg recently gave $5 million to a hospital near his house. Great. I, I'm happy that happened. Right. But is that hospital the one that needs the money most, or is it maybe a hospital in Detroit that needs the money more? Well, if you have a central government that can kind of take a wider view of this, we can get the funds to where they're needed. Instead, what happens is the funds are distributed purely based on proximity to Mark Zuckerberg's house, which is not a good way to decide how to distribute funds. <laughs> and and it's, that's another thing I've discovered. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, uh, social uh, movements, political movements, where you have many different private charities all basically down on their knees begging for money and... Frankly, there's some duplication of services. I mean, there's all kinds of safe energy groups. There's all kinds of uh, animal uh, uh, charity uh, organizations. There's uh, housing organizations. They're, they're competing with one another for the same few crumbs that might be thrown down. And that, you know, I, I get lots and lots of uh, letters and calls requesting money, and there's this tremendous duplication of services. Now, is there another model that I'm guessing that there would be where, you know, if it's a, a government administered, they wouldn't have to be competing for the same few dollars and spending more money to get some money? 
Yeah, it, yeah, absolutely. And the other thing to remember is, is you're a, I'm sure you're a very smart guy, but you also don't really have the information necessary to make the decision about what charity you want to give to other than, absolutely. oh, animal rights is something I'm interested in. Right. With the government programs, I mean, we can, we can run the numbers and see what programs are, are most efficient. Uh, and, and so, yeah, there, there really is a, a very big information problem with, with the decentralized version of charity. What I would like to see is both models at the same time. Hmm. So I would say, yeah, let's keep private charity. Let's not make it tax deductible, though. Let's make sure that the, that money still stays in the public coffers. And then in addition, if you're very interested in something that, say, is getting attention, like Bill Gates is very interested in, in contraception overseas. Right. That is an actual, that's a really important thing for him to be doing because the government, uh, uh, given right now the power of, of, a, of a religious right movement, can't do that. So Bill Gates should hop in there and do that, but he should, he should also pay a larger share of his, his, his wealth and taxes. Yeah, that does seem to be uh, the case. And, and, you know, it just, it bugs me how many organizations are struggling for the very same dollars and how inefficient that is. And there's got to be a better way to do that. You know, the, again, it comes back to the, to the right and a vision of how things should be done. And you look at the, the old Confederacy, which is the new Tea Party, basically the same thing. They, if you look at the South, their culture is to uh, turn to old-fashioned charity and churches. They just assume the government's not going to do it, that uh, depending on the kindness of strangers and churches does it. They claim it works well in the South. Uh, you argue that there's simply no way to, to ease poverty with charity. How well does it work in the South? Is there any kind of legitimacy to that? Well, I mean, they may want to they can talk to the cows come home, but the fact is that poverty in the South is, is far higher than yeah. it is in, in developed, it should be in a developed country. So we've seen the social democracy work in Europe. And let's just take the numbers we have now. And, and one, of the, one of the conservative arguments that's the most absurd and frustrating is the idea that, oh, well, if government was smaller, then you'd have more money because you get your taxes cut, and so you'd have more money to give to charity. And I, I think we can safely say, given the fact that charitable contributions are tax-deductible, that that's an absurd premise. So we'll take what we have right now, which is uh, $300 billion each year. Well, that's barely enough to even start paying for Medicaid. So if you want to have a private charity system, you have to literally cut every federal program to eliminate poverty, except for maybe some of Medicaid. So there's absolutely no way to have to have a an actual strong social safety net based on private charity. And another part of the social safety net that's very important to remember is that it's counter-cyclical. So, so when there's a recession, uh, the social safety more people rely on the social safety net because they're out of work. Yes. Now, try to think of what would happen in a charity. We have more people who are relying on social safety net, but we also, they also have less money. So the people who are trying, the 1%, have just gotten hit hard in the stock market, so they're not going to open the pocketbooks quite as much. So you actually exacerbate the problem because uh, they can't run a deficit the way that the government can run a deficit. Oh, interesting. 
that's true. The government does run on a deficit, and you know the right screams bloody murder that we have deficit spending. But if you have a house, if you have a mortgage, you're doing deficit spending. Deficit spending is basic Keynesian uh, economics, and it works. Let's, I mean, it just it does. We borrow money, we pay back money. That's how the capitalist system works. If you just tuned into the Burt Cohen Show, our guest today is Sean McElwee, writer and researcher. We're talking about uh, charity is great, but it won't bring real change, and it actually perpetuates the myth that we need to have an ultra-rich. Charity includes, it is, you know, tax-deductible now, and that promotes people giving to, to charity, and it includes all kinds of 501c3s and 501c4s which are, you know, tax-deductible, government-recognized nonprofits. I wonder what you know about the variation of these nonprofits and what kind of scrutiny there may be over these charities, over things like what part of the money goes where it's intended and, and you know, how messy is this situation? Right, and we know for a fact that the Journal of Philanthropy recently did a study that found that something like less than 30% of philanthropy actually goes to helping the poor. Oh it, most, most of it ends up, as, as I said, going to colleges and universities so that wealthy kids can get their, or wealthy parents can get kids into Harvard. It ends up going to churches. Uh, it ends up going to art. And, and a lot of it, actually, if you look at the Walton family, it's a perfect example of this. Mm-hmm. The reason that they give so much to charity, which they don't give a lot, but that is actually because they get a huge tax break from it. They actually end up making money off of their charity uh, using using loopholes. And so that's, I think, a very mm. important part that we don't talk about, which is the fact that for Bill Gates, philanthropy is helping people who have you know AIDS in Africa, which is great. But for Sheldon Adelson, right. philanthropy is giving massive amounts of money to far-right candidates. So this is, again, goes back to the public-private problem. When you take money that out of the public sphere these tax deductions, and you give it to the private sphere, we're relying on the whims of the wealthy. Yes. And, and I would prefer not to have uh, uh, my society run by the whims of the wealthy. I, I'd much rather have it run by democracy. Yeah, interesting, democracy, and people are wary of that, of course, but uh, you, you do my attention to something I had never heard of. There's a book called Philanthrocapitalism, How the Rich Can Save the World. Tell yeah. us about that. Yeah, it, it, it goes back to the point, which is you can very much see that the, the rich are worried. Uh, and they're worried because they've realized that they are, they're not the, the Rockefeller, they're Carnegie. They are the products of a system they haven't created, and so they want to make themselves matter again. And you can see this in the Wall Street Journal op-ed page frequently. And yes, it, in a very real way, this idea that tech or the wealthy can save the world is putting them once again at the center of the equation. And it is, just like Mencken says, the idea that you can save the world is ultimately an idea about power. And that, is, that should be disturbing to anyone who thinks that the wealthy can save the world. It's that they're seeking their own, their own legacy, their own power. Was this book, Philanthrocapitalism, in favor? Oh, yes, yes. It's, <laughs> it is a, a fawning coverage, just like what the, the Business Insider has given Mark Zuckerberg, because he says that he will give money. And the, the easiest way to get positive PR for a wealthy person is claim that you're going to give some amount of money away. 
And that, that term fawning is so real. We've all seen it, you know, where, where, where average people fawn all over very wealthy people. And there's an example here uh, where this show is coming from. Oh, I uh, can't remember his uh, not, I can't remember his name now. He was a, a, a big head of, uh, of a computer uh, firm. And uh, he, Dennis Kozlowski. Yes, Dennis Kozlowski. I, I remember seeing him and, you know, he was an extremely wealthy guy. And, and going to events, people would just fawn all over him. Well, he's still serving time in jail, I believe. And, you know, just that whole, it's kind of degrading, I think, to, to both people, too, because, you know, in terms of, human relations are people being nice to you because they want something from you they think you're super rich and therefore better than they are i mean it, it it's not a real way of of relating to, to people and it just uh, creates this uh you know upper and lower class and as you say uh, perpetuates that uh you know the, the the super wealthy aren't all uh, Mark Zuckerberg's and, and Gates. I mean, they, they try to do something good based on, as you say, their whims. There's also been throughout American history people who are quite wealthy who feel like uh, there's the old phrase, uh, too much is given, much is expected. The Rockefellers have governed. Uh, David Rockefeller, uh, and, well, he didn't personally, but Nelson Rockefeller. And of course, the Kennedys. There's there's Mayor Bloomberg, former Mayor Bloomberg of New York, who who uh, is funding very heavily mayors against gun violence. George Soros has a lot of uh, liberal causes. Again, this is all based on their whims. What about this? I mean, the, the notion that, uh, I mean, the Kennedys, it seems to me, took it very, very seriously. Too much uh, is to those whose, whose much is given, much is expected. What about that aspect? I mean, there's always going to be wealthy and not so wealthy people in the United States. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't have to be quite as as, uh, as distinct as it is now with the one percent. You know, the Walton family having more wealth than forty percent of Americans. Right. Uh, Combined. Yeah. Yeah. But one of the first assumptions, and and if you if you follow the right wing media, which I which I do closely because I I, I want to know what they're saying. Yeah. Someone like John Stossel will say Bill Gates doesn't need to give a cent because just through the free market system, he's already given us so much. So ah. he talks about you know all of this technology. And I think that if the left wants to get serious about that, this issue, we have to challenge that assumption. So we have to look at someone like Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates and say, did they, did they really add that much value to society? And I would argue in a very real way that they did not. And I, and I argue that we have, a, we have a wrong way of thinking about innovation, which is we like to attribute an innovation to an individual. When in many cases, and Mark Lemley at Stanford makes this point brilliantly, what happens is is technological progress gets to a point where this is just a low-hanging fruit and someone's going to grab it. So uh, Lou Daly has in his book, Unjust Desserts, he tells of you know, multiple people running to the patent office to, to patent the telegraph. Because at some point, innovation gets to a point where it's just one little step that someone has to take. And so I think with both Gates and Zuckerberg, you can see this, where their, their wealth derives from something that I don't know if you can give them as much credit as we, as we generally do for, for what they've done. So once you get rid of that assumption, then you're left with just this massive windfall profit that they have. And my argument is that that windfall profit should be 
used by the used in the public sphere rather than in in individuals. Now, if given that we do have this massive inequality, I would argue first off we need to tax it. Yeah. Uh, but but can Bill Gates do good things and can uh, Bloomberg do great things? Absolutely. Bloomberg has literally paid the legal fees for Uruguay to fight off uh, Philip Morris because Philip Morris is trying to sue them for their new plain packaging tobacco. That's a great thing that he's doing. He's saving probably hundreds of thousands of lives in Uruguay by by fighting big tobacco, and I'm glad he's doing it. But I just I I I if you want to accept the Bloomberg Bloombergs of the world, you also have to accept the Cokes of the world and the Adelsons of the world. And I don't know if I want to do that as well. Yeah, it's interesting how our our founders of this country uh, talked about an an old concept, an 18th century concept known as virtue, that in order for a republic, a government of, by, and for the people, to survive, there have to be virtuous leaders. And fast forward to the 21st century, there's this cult of the wealthy, uh, and the media treats them as the fact that they have this wealth, they are the paragons of virtue. Yep. That's a little bizarre. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, the, this is another one of these key premises that we, we like to overlook when we talk about philanthropy, which is we, when in a market economy, we for some reason assume that if you're making a lot of money, that you're doing something good. Well, you can make a lot of money doing very, very bad things. <laughs> for example, true. selling cigarettes. Yes. Uh, and, and, yes, and I think we need to get rid of that assumption that simply because someone's market income is high. That the, in fact, Frederick Hayek made this point very, very really. He said markets don't distribute based on moral virtue. They distribute entirely based on demand for your product. So to ascribe merit to people simply because they have wealth or genius to people simply because they have wealth uh, even Hayek would say this is an, that's an absurd proposition. You should never ascribe anything to someone who has wealth other than the fact that they have large amounts of wealth. It's so amazing to me that so much of our society these days seems to be, you know, worshipful of wealth. And, mm-hmm. you know, that those are the, uh, the uh, uh, role models for our kids to live up to, never mind being a good person. Rich equals good. It's it's amazing to me, and you look at the I mean the pollution, the uh, so many things. It 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 doesn't equal virtue. I'm sure that the the very wise founders of this country would not equate great wealth by itself with virtue. And and Bert, this is actually a new development. What do you mean? Uh, I mean, if you if you look through, say, I I've relatively familiar with the Catholic tradition, but you can see it in America too. Up until the you know. The 70s or 80s, people with wealth were generally looked down upon because oh, hmm. to get that, it was uh, G.K. Chesterton. He said, "There's a constant debate in our society about whether the rich man can be corrupted. He's rich. He's already been corrupted. That's all the evidence that we need." <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so, so the idea, I mean, many of the people who were wealthy before, the look at the Rockefellers. The way that they did that was purely exploitation, and they were they were denigrated regularly in the mainstream media for this. Uh, viciously. Uh, and so the, the, this proposition that the rich are morally virtuous is a very new one, and one that I think that, that we should jettison. We are talking on the Burt Cohen Show today, loud and clear, with Sean McElwee, yeah. writer and researcher about uh, charity, philanthropic capitalism, 
And there's a great quote, uh, I don't know if it was in your article, uh, from uh, the character Marquis de Sade in the play Marat Sade, uh, written by Peter Weiss, the playwright. And this is a great quote here. Compassion is the property of the privileged classes. While uh, when the pitier lowers himself to give a beggar, he throbs with contempt to protect his riches. He pretends to be moved, and his gift to the beggar amounts to no more than a kick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brilliant quote. That is a, an amazing quote. How much of, of philanthropy is really about the rich just refusing to pay their fair share and a way to protect themselves and protect their wealth? Oh, absolutely. Yes, it's, it's very odd if you follow closely when Mark Zuckerberg give, uh, gives money, uh-huh. it always is, just oddly, it happens to coincide with press revelations about privacy violations of his company. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and, and again, with the Bill Gates, we have to understand that these fortunes, you don't make that much money generally without harming someone. And, and in a real way, Bill Gates made his fortune using the legal system to bludgeon any competitor. And so I think that you can see philanthropy uh, as a way of getting positive PR. Yes. And I'm always skeptical of it. I, whenever I see something like Coca-Cola giving away a million dollars, I wonder, yes, but how much of that money do they get back in revenues because of people who are like, oh, oh. Coca-Cola is giving money, I should buy their product. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's, 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 it's in a capitalist system, I wonder if there can ever be truly selfless giving. Yeah. And so, yes, that's why I would say tax it away. <laughs> well, but then, I mean, uh, surely, Sean, you're not saying, well, maybe you are, that there shouldn't be wealthy people. It seems to me, you know, we're not, we're never going to have socialism here. Although we've had socialism for the very rich a long time. The system always protects and serves the very rich. That's socialism for the rich, as Gore Vidal so accurately oh, yeah. mentioned. But, I mean, there's never going to be equality. It's always going to be rich and poor people, in, at least in the United States, no? Oh, yes. Uh, I was... I wanted to use your Gorfidal quote when you started started going down that line. See, okay. you you, uh, you got me there. Yeah, I think. I mean, even at the golden age that that Paul Krugman, for example, talks about the, this great compression in the sixties. Yeah, hmm. you still have massive amounts of wealth. But I, I I've always seen the leftist position as and Nietzsche says the left they're tarantulas and we're envious of the wealthy. Yeah. But I've always seen the leftist position as something about justice. I, I never, I didn't become a leftist because of anger at the rich. It was because of the deprivation of the poor. Uh-huh. And so I think we see in societies that are actually developed, uh, like European societies, when we get that minimum modicum standard of living, if you have health care and food, I really don't worry if you have Prada shoes. So, so yes, I, I, I'm totally fine with having wealthy people. Right. They can have their conspicuous consumption and their goods. But I'd like to get to a society where we don't have people who are dying for want of health care. Right. And the easiest way to get there is uh, some, maybe take, take some of that money that is spent on product shoes and spend it on something more important. Well, we'll see how uh, new mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, uh, fares. He's trying to get uh, uh, increased taxes on the very, very wealthiest in New York City, of which there are quite a few, extremely mm-hmm. wealthy. And we'll see if that works. And if you look at, you know, worldwide global policies, we have things uh, currently called the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. And what what they are, it seems to me, is the rich countries trying to, in quote, help 
the poor countries. And where does the, the World Bank and the IMF fit in the context we're speaking about? Well, Bert, I'm, I'm glad I'm widely read when I come on your show, because it normally ends up talking about something entirely different article, which is great. Uh, yeah, and I've actually actually just done some research on this. Uh, but yeah, free trade often carries with it things that are not in the economics textbooks, right? In the economics textbooks, we talk about comparative advantage and how awesome trade is in creating wealth, and it does. And free trade is great. But <laughs> too often it comes with, so look at the Trans-Pacific Partnership. This comes with an investor settlement dispute mechanism, which sounds jargony, but in the, it, at its most basic, it's the ability of corporations to sue governments. And that's very disturbing because it's being used by big tobacco companies to sue governments to try to, uh, try to, try to, re- who try to regulate their products. So, so in a very real way, these ideas of free trade creating development, true, but we have to remember that free trade never comes alone. Uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership has 19 chapters. Three of them are devoted to traditional trade issues. The rest are devoted to things like intellectual property rights and labor rights and environmental rights. And that's where we need to look at these really deeply. And when, the, when these poor countries come to uh, the, the World Bank and the IMF, they come hobbled. They don't, they don't bargain from a position of equality. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the Democratic Republic of Congo, when it first won its independence, they, they, they accumulated the debts from the machetes that were used to, to kill their children. They accumulated those debts. The IMF later settled the debts and said, oh, we'll settle the debts. You just have to implement some free market reform to make it easier for us to dump our products on you. Right. Uh, so, yes, they, they do not, these countries do not bargain equally. And it, and it is very disturbing what the West has been able to do in terms of resource exploitation. Yes, it's, uh, you look at the IMF and the World Bank and the, the austerity that they impose mm-hmm. on these developing countries, and it's all coming down from the top. That's, it seems to be their source of money. I mean, it's, it's all about the, the super, I mean, the wealthiest countries protecting their interests and protecting their wealth, and, you know, they want to encourage, at least in theory, these countries to be able to buy products that are made by the wealthiest. But it doesn't usually work that way. And there's a great deal of anger in these developing countries at the IMF and at the World Bank because, they're look, they're about protecting the, the current system and maintaining the status quo and uh, preventing revolutions and things like that. Uh, it's, it's, that's clearly what it is. Well, what can... You know what? What can people do if you if you recognize the that the system of philanthropy is about maintaining uh, the current system, is about protecting the wealthy from having to pay their fair share? What can people do about this? It doesn't seem like you know Congress, which is large, largely not entirely, but largely bought and paid for by the uh, you know the super wealthy and might as well wear uh, corporate logos on their jackets in Congress. Uh, what can people do, Sean? I mean. Let's start with being informed. That's a very important part. But yes, uh, the, the people often talk with, within Democratic Party about how bad the DLC was, the, the Stem- right. Democratic Leadership Conference. Blue Dogs. Council. Yeah, and I, I've talked about how much I dislike Hillary Clinton on your show. Yes. The, the, the reason that we should dislike the elites that are running the party is not necessarily the economic liberalism, uh, neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. That's part of it. The real thing, the ultimate sin that they've committed 
is they forgot that the power of the left has always come from the working class. And, and we, we always think of FDR, you know, passing Social Security. FDR could only pass Social Security because of how terrified the wealthy were yes. uh, of the socialists and the communists and the, so the unions. Yep. So, so the, the, we have to remember that the power of the left has always come from the bottom. And when we talk about the possibility that the Democrats might lose the Senate, I say the reason the Democrats are losing the Senate is because we put all of our apples in this basket of Obama. And Obama can't do anything unless we have liberals on city councils in Topeka, Kansas. Mm-hmm. That's where it starts. So the first thing anyone can do on any of these issues is start becoming politically active in your community. Uh-huh. Uh, look at de Blasio. Perfect example. Mm-hmm. The left fawns over de Blasio. Oh, well, well, the only way that de Blasio got elected was because the Working Family Party has been working in New York City for 30 years. They've gotten no coverage at all. No one's talked about the Working Families Party, but they've been for 30 years fighting for a higher minimum wage, uh, child care. They've expanded to Connecticut. They've done great things in Connecticut for, for a minimum wage. These, these are the big issues that no one talks about. The right has started to realize this. They're starting to, to, to try to influence even the smallest mayoral elections. And that's what the mm-hmm. left needs to do, is start becoming active in your community. I'm always amazed that people are the most concerned about the federal elections, which is something they have the least control over. Absolutely. Start talking about the roads in your town. That's where we get the power from. And we can never forget that the, all the great leftist leaders have drawn so much power from the base. MLK didn't march on Washington alone. Uh, and, and lots of people have to be around to make that happen. So that's, I think that's the fallacy that the left has embraced, and we need to reject it as quickly as possible if we want to be a viable, viable political movement. And there's a great quote from FDR, who was talking with uh, H. Philip Randolph, who was head of the uh, Pullman uh, Pullman. Uh, Railroad Car Workers Association in fighting in the 1930s for uh, you know equality and non-discrimination, and Roosevelt said something to him like, "I don't have the exact quote uh, that you know I'm with you. I want to end discrimination. Now go out there and make me do it." And that, Absolutely. Uh, that's the there's a, a brilliant British comedian where he has this bit. He says, "I started getting involved in in, in leftist movements, and I would go with the leaders, and I would say, let's do this, and let's do that, and they would ignore me." And eventually when the leader said, you organize the meeting, and I will attend the meeting, start doing something. Absolutely. And then the comedian paused and he said, so I realized something that day, which is I should stop trying to mobilize. He takes the exact wrong lesson from it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> no. just kind of sit back and not do anything. Because that, that is, it is a very hard thing to do to actually get out there it and is. start mobilizing service workers. Right. But it, it happened. We've done that. And... We've started fighting for a higher minimum wage. So, yeah, I think that is the thing is the left is just keeps waiting for a leader. And you're (laughs) you're not going to get one. Bad strategy. If you wait for a leader, you're going to end up with Hillary Clinton. So Uh, I know. Uh, I know. Hey, always good to talk to you. I'm sure we'll talk again. Oh, definitely. And next time I will make sure to use your landline. (laughs) Absolutely. And uh, I I apologize. I just got into a new office Uh, and I, I... I thought cell phone it's, works better because I don't know my number yet. Ah. I'm glad I called you instead of you calling me because I right. didn't know what number to call. Well, that's fine. Thank you so much. Perfect. Very informative, as always. Philanthrocapitalism. Uh, yes, thanks so much, uh, Sean McElwee. Always good to talk to you. Uh, thank you for having me.
And uh, I don't know, sometimes it's about money for nothing. Thanks very much for listening. Yeah.